What does it mean to be Pentecostal? Is it mean that we have a bunch of practices? We do four-hour services. We do extended worship. We have emotional preaching or emotional worship. Does it mean that we have a one-man ministry band who's up the front laying hands on everyone and being slain in the spirit? Are those practices what it means to be Pentecostal? Or are they just things that are giving expression to some Pentecostal principles? See, today I'm not interested in discussing practices because I will only be loyal to a practice as long as it gives life and expression to a principle. I'm far more interested in looking at what the Bible has to say about what it means to be a Pentecostal people. And to do that, friends, we don't just go back to Acts 2, we go all the way back to Exodus 19. Because the thing that you need to understand is Acts 2 is actually not the first time that Pentecost is mentioned in the Bible. In fact, Pentecost was an Old Testament festival which commemorated the giving of the law to the Israelite nation at Mount Sinai. Notice that Pentecost always happens 50 days after Passover. Passover in Egypt where the angel of death passed over the children of Israel when they painted the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. 50 days after that, they are at Mount Sinai being given the law that celebrates the birth of the nation. You need to understand that Passover and Pentecost are always tied together. Passover where Jesus gave his life, the Passover lamb himself who gave his life for for the freedom of all of us. 50 days after that, the disciples are in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes. What does that represent? The birth of the church. God is deliberately mirroring these accounts. And so if you want to understand what it means to be a Pentecostal people, what the principles of Pentecostalism are, you're best to look not just at Acts 2, you've got to go all the way back to Exodus 19 as well. And today in this message, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to parallel these two accounts so that we can see what does it truly mean to be a Pentecostal people. Let me read it out. Exodus 19 verse 16 to 18. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder, lightning, with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As we look at these two passages, we can get some ideas of what it means to be a Pentecostal people. Firstly, the first principle of what it means to be a Pentecostal people is that a Pentecostal people are a listening people. If you look at both of those accounts, God manifests himself in a sound before a sight. At Mount Sinai, there is a sound like a loud trumpet blast. In Acts chapter 2 in the upper room, it says that there is a sound like the rushing of a wind. You need to understand today that sometimes God announces his presence. He announces his presence before he shows it. Behold, I am doing a new thing. It springs forth now. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness. Come on, somebody. Waters in a wasteland. 
Sometimes God announces his presence the way you hear an earthquake before you see it. The way the disciples heard the call of God, the call, heard the call of Jesus across the waters before they saw him beckon him. The way a loud trumpet blast will announce his coming before he comes again on the clouds with fire. Sometimes God announces his presence before you see it. And so foundational for what it means to be a Pentecostal people is to be a listening people. Oh, are you listening for the sound of a new song? Are you listening for the sound of revival? Are you listening for the next word of God? Are you listening for the next invitation of God? Are you listening for the next proclamation of God? Because you better believe today that a Pentecostal people are fundamentally a listening people. We hear first, then step second. We are fundamentally a listening people. Firstly, we're listening people. Secondly today, we are an immersed people. A Pentecostal people is an immersed people. See, Pentecostal people are a people who are absolutely immersed, baptized in the Spirit of God. That's what it means to be baptized. It means to be immersed, to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist said this. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You need to understand that John the Baptist actually in this passage is being somewhat redundant because fire was already a well-established metaphor for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. So essentially, John the Baptist is saying, after me comes one who is gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit. I want a double portion of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it awesome, though, that when the Holy Spirit does come in the upper room, it comes in tongues of fire? Did you notice that when He comes on the top of Mount Sinai, it says that fire immersed the top of Mount Sinai? In the upper room, it says that, that tongues of flame come to rest on each of those disciples. And you need to understand that word rest in the English, slightly misleading. Actually, what it really means, we see cartoon flames, you know, coming and sitting on the shoulders of all the disciples because we've been in too much children's church, you know? <laughs> But actually, that word rest means more to immerse. And actually, the picture is that fire immersed the disciples in the same way fire immersed the top of Mount Sinai. You need to understand that as a Pentecostal people, we simply must be a people who are immersed in the Holy Spirit and functioning in the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. Notice that after they are immersed in the Holy Spirit, what does it say? It says they speak in new tongues. And this was the new sign that was associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in the upper room. In this account, it's natural tongues. Elsewhere in the New Testament, you will see that this includes tongues that have a heavenly language. But you need to understand that when you are immersed in the Holy Spirit, it will be fruited in gifts. 
gifts of wisdom, gifts of prophecy, gifts of healing, gifts of discernment, gifts of tongues, gift of the discerning of tongues. When you are immersed in the Holy Spirit, it will be evidenced, fruited by the gifts of the Spirit. Listen, I don't want to come on too strong, but this is the Word of God. I am unashamedly after the movement of the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our churches, because that's what it means to be a people who are immersed. We are saturated in the Holy Spirit and we move in the gifts that he gives full stop the end. We are after the moving of miracles. That's in our DNA. It's who we are. But more than that, when it says to be immersed in fire, I want to like flip that on the other side and preach the other side of the coin that doesn't get preached as much. Because the reality is, when we talk about gifts, we're talking about things that actually seems quite attractive. I'd love for gifts to break out, healing to break out. But that choice of fire is quite important because remember I said earlier that fire had a rich symbolism in the Old Testament. Fire's primary function was in worship. Remember, burnt offerings were put on the altar and they were set alight. The aroma went before God as a form of worship. The angels who worship around God's throne are called seraphim or burning ones. Come on, somebody. Worship in the Bible is not destructive, it's transformative. It takes a sinner and it makes them clean. It takes an offering and it makes it worship. In fact, fire in the Bible, it doesn't burn up everything in its path. It only burns up that which is impure. Holy things aren't burnt up by holy fire. They are just set alight by it. When you think about this, you begin to realize that when you and I lay ourselves on the altar, let ourselves be set alight by holy fire, burning but not burning up, the aroma of our lives going before God, we begin to realize that actually becoming like Christ is our truest form of worship. Consenting to the process of the impure in my life being set alight and burnt up by holy fire, that is my truest form of worship. Why did I give you that incredibly quick racing through of the picture of fire in the Old Testament? I did it with a purpose. When we begin to talk about how the Holy Spirit came in fire, we need to understand that He's not just coming in gifts. He's coming to fruit holiness. I do not want to go after the gifts of the Spirit more than I pursue holiness. More than I pursue coming like Christ. And listen, sometimes I fear, and the older among you will know, sometimes I fear that we have younger generations who are pursuing platform privilege, gifting, fame, and influence far more than they are pursuing being set alight by the fire of God. And listen, I believe that the next move of God is not one that will just be fruited by gifts. It'll be fruited by repentance and an earnest desire to become Christ-like. Why? Because gifts and holiness, friends, two sides of the same coin. And to be honest, I don't want to function in any gifts if my heart has not been refined with the refiner's fire. 
We need to be a people who are immersed and that will be fruited with gifts and it'll be fruited with holiness. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, number three, a Pentecostal people is a proclaiming people. What followed both Exodus 19, and listen, Exodus Exodus 19 and that that account is obviously a lot happens there. But ultimately, Moses gives a proclamation of the law he received to the people. And what happens in the upper room after uh, they have that incredible encounter is that Peter comes down and he preaches and 3,000 are saved. You need to understand that for every encounter, there needs to be a proclamation. I'll say that again. For every encounter, there needs to be a proclamation. Pentecostal people are not people who stay trapped on the mountaintop. We're not people who stay shut up in the upper room. We must come down from the mountain, come down from the upper room. I know the encounter was good, but friend, don't stay there. When there are people who are down the bottom of the mountain, who are below the upper room, who need you to proclaim it. Let me tell you why. It's because, uh, have you ever noticed that an, an, an unproclaimed encounter becomes a misunderstood encounter? Should I prove it to you? Acts 2, 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? These are the people at the bottom of the upper room in Jerusalem. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. <laughs> Let me say it again. An unproclaimed encounter is a misunderstood encounter. If we don't come down the mountain and offer our proclamation, friend, you let people draw their own conclusions of what happened, and people will. They'll say, oh, Pentecostals, they're just overly emotional. That's why they, that's why they got slain in the spirit. They're just overly emotional. The guy praying for him must have had a bad breath, bad breath and so he did a pity fall. You know, like, listen, <laughs> they'll make up a story. You must Add a proclamation to your encounter, otherwise it will be misunderstood. By nature, Pentecost people are a proclaiming people, and then also they are an inclusive people. Listen, this is amazing. The Feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament was a celebratory feast where everyone was invited to participate, including slaves and foreigners. Come on, let's flash into the New Testament. You can put the scripture up in Acts 2, verse 9 to 11. I'm not going to read it out because, my goodness, you'll just laugh at my pronunciation. It's a lot of nations who were gathered in Jerusalem. What marks the Pentecostal people hear this is that they are inclusive of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And actually, one of the most profound influences of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Azusa Street Uh, which really marked uh, the beginning of Pentecostalism in the United States, Um, one one of the most profound things, they sent in secular journalists to cover this outpouring. And uh, one of the things that they said there was that at a time of massive segregation, this was the time of Jimmy Crow laws in the United States, secular journalists reported that the bloodlines faded away at Azusa. You better believe that a Pentecostal people is marked by radical inclusiveness. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue. If your encounter is limited to people who look like you, 
Friend, you have not embraced the truth of what it means to be a Pentecostal people because it will be evidenced by radical unity. And finally, I'm landing the plane. Are you tired? Because I am. (laughs) Just joking. A Pentecostal people is a multiplying people. Get this. Pentecost in the Old Testament was one of the only, I think it was the only Jewish festival uh, where it was allowed for yeast to be used in the bread. All of the other Jewish festivals required unleavened bread, except for Pentecost. What is yeast? Yeast is a multiplying agent. It's an agent that makes things rise. What happens uh, on Pentecost in Acts 2, it says that Paul goes down from the upper room, Peter goes down from the upper room, and 3,000 people are added to the church that day. Friend, you need to understand that in the DNA of what it means to be a Pentecostal people is that we are a multiplying people. That's built into the fabric of who they are. You know, many academics believe that Pentecostalism is now the, the most widespread Protestant denomination. I'm not sure if, how the numbers line up, but one thing is for sure, it's the fastest growing. It's the fastest growing. How could it not be? When multiplication is built into the DNA of who we are. And when you think about it, see, if we truly embodied what it meant to be Pentecostal, if we were a listening people who didn't rely on strength or effort or human understanding, come on, somebody, but who genuinely listened for the whispers of the Holy Spirit moving us forward, if we could be an immersed people who were functioning in all of the gifts, but not only that, honestly pursuing holiness, a desire to be in the world, but not of the world, if we genuinely embraced what it meant to be distinct from, because we needed to point to a distinctive God, if we genuinely embraced what it meant to be immersed, if we genuinely took the bold step to be a proclaiming people who don't just have the encounter in rooms, but who go through the doors of the church unafraid to boldly proclaim that which we have experienced, if we were radically inclusive, if we didn't turn another eye at anyone who walked into our church, if we knew what it was to truly embrace both diversity and unity, because friend, you've got to understand there is no true unity without diversity. There's only uniformity. If we truly understood what it meant to be an inclusive people, how could we not? How could we not then also be a multiplying people, a people who see more and more people come to know the kindness and goodness of our great God. I pray, I pray that we go back to our roots. And when I say go back to our roots, I'm not talking (laughs) mid-1900s. I'm talking X2. And I pray that we truly, truly embrace what it means to be birthed in the spirit of Pentecost. Come on, let's pray together. Lord, I pray for this church right now in the name of Jesus. And I pray, I pray that you would make us bold. God, make us bold enough to listen. Make us bold enough to pursue gifts. Make us humble enough to pursue holiness. 
Make us bold enough to give voice to the encounters that we have. Make us a people of proclamation, oh God. Make us humble enough to be inclusive. Give us eyes to see outsiders and eyes to see the one. May we be set on fire in our pursuit of the one. God, I pray that you would make us a people who multiply to the glory of your name. And just with every eye closed and every head bowed, if you just stay in this place, let me say that there's no Pentecost without Passover. And friend, if you're in this place today and you have never come to know the freedom that Christ Jesus won for us, I want to give you an opportunity. Because the reality is I'm proclaiming an encounter that I have, that Christ set me free, that he delivered me, that he was the hope of my heart and the salvation of my soul. And it would be hurtful to not give you an invitation to come to know him. Because let me tell you for a second about you. You were made for life. You were made for hope. You were made for peace. But more than anything, you were made for, for God. You were made on purpose, for a purpose. Your, pla- your life on planet Earth has purpose. But you don't know that now. Why? Well, the Bible talks about sin. Sin separates us from God. It's the wrong in our life, our decision to go our own way. But God loved us too much to leave us where we were. So he sent Jesus Jesus died for our sins so that we could have the peace, the life, the relationship with God that we were meant to have. He really is that good. And so today I want to give you an opportunity to know him. And so if you're in this place and you've never made a decision for Jesus or you want to make one again, maybe you made one once you walked away, in a moment I'm going to give you that opportunity. I'm going to count to three, and after I do it, I pray you raise your hand. One, two, three, if that's you. Raise your hand. You're saying, today, I want to give my life to Jesus. Awesome. Church, repeat this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin. I follow you. Thanks to you. I'm free in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen and amen.